Hello and welcome to Macro Matters, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen Standard Investments. My name is Paul Diggle and along with my co-host Stephanie Kelly, we're guiding you through the macroeconomic and political themes which are driving global markets. And today we're talking about the Delta variant and what it means for the course of the global economic recovery out of the pandemic. The start of a potential fourth global COVID wave driven by this new Delta variant is certainly challenging our relatively upbeat set of global macroeconomic forecasts and its worrying financial markets. Indeed, Delta has taken over from inflation as the biggest topic of conversations in markets right now. But with vaccines breaking the link between cases and deaths from COVID, at least where vaccine rollouts have occurred, does Delta or indeed any future variant really pose a threat to the global economic recovery? So joining me in this discussion are James McCann, Deputy Chief Economist at Aberdeen Standard Investments and Head of our US Forecasting, and Ed Glossop, Emerging Market Economist and a Deep Specialist in Latin America. James, Ed, welcome back to the podcast. So we're talking this week about the threat to the economic recovery from the Delta variant. But first, tell us, James, from your vantage point in Boston in the US, Ed in London, are you seeing behaviours, official restrictions change at all in response to the Delta variant? Are you changing your behaviour? Thanks, Paul. Uh, We're not seeing any change in official restrictions over here in, in Boston or Massachusetts more generally, even though cases are rising quite quite steeply. I think from a personal behaviour standpoint, there's a touch of confusion about what to do with regards to masks. Obviously, the CDC has changed its guidance around vaccinated people and whether they should wear masks indoors. So I think at the moment, people are taking it more into their own hands and and trying to judge that public health risk. But really, it's it's a little bit unhelpful. We're getting mixed signals around where you should wear a mask, when you shouldn't, etc. Ed, what are you seeing in London? Uh, Hi, hi, Paul. Yes, uh, similar to James, really. I I would say there's generally limited concern about the Delta variant, um, at least from my vantage point in in West London. Of course, all restrictions in the UK have been lifted. My wife's taken our seven months to all of her baby classes. We've been to a few normal weddings, park runs back on, so it's very much as normal. I think the general feeling is that the high vaccination coverage is making people feel relatively confident, even though cases are clearly rising around us. Great. So let's get into the proper discussion then, taking all those points into account. So we're going to start by reviewing the current situation in terms of the spread of the Delta variant in some of the major global economies that we cover. And I'll start with with Europe and the UK. And as you say there, Ed, we're of course seeing a pretty large wave in the UK um, driven by the Delta variant, but that may have peaked already. And I think here the real puzzle is, is that renewed decline in cases after the recent peak going to be sustained? Uh, Have we achieved some kind of herd immunity from vaccine rollout? Or could it be that actually schools closing for the summer, the end of the Euro football competition, the better weather here in the UK, and the fact that a lot of people are being forced into isolation by the COVID app is what's doing a lot of the work in terms of uh, pushing case numbers down. And I think trends are pretty similar in Europe as well, uh, with a bit of a lag. So a big delta wave has been occurring um, but the crucial development is that in in widely vaccinated Europe, uh, the 
the link between cases and, and deaths has really been weakened. And we're going to get into how that might change the economic outlook. James, what's the what's the um, Delta situation in the US then? In particular, how is it playing out differently in different states of the US? Yeah, I think perhaps Delta is even earlier than Europe in its, in its way. We're seeing Delta over recent weeks become the dominant strain here. At the national level, we're seeing cases rise quite steeply but your point is absolutely right it differs enormously depending on where you sit in in the country the i guess most well publicized hotspot is florida at the moment which accounts for almost 20 percent of, of nationwide cases cases per capita are earning around three times the national average there but when we look across the south so louisiana um, alabama mississippi you know certainly we see very troubling rises in in new covid cases and I think really when we look at the vaccine coverage, this is where some of those differences start to creep in as well. So we've just hit 70% of all adults have had their first dose across the country as a whole. But when we cut down, actually, there's quite significant differences in, in state-level vaccinations. Interestingly, Florida is not one of the worst performers in terms of state-level vaccinations. It sits close to the middle, so around 70% of adults. But if we cut within the state, we can see some very, very low vaccine coverage in part of in part of that state. So a minimum of 28% in certain counties. In other parts of the South, there's even deeper problems with vaccine coverage. So Louisiana, for instance, only 54% of, of adults statewide have had at least one dose. And again, when we look at the worst performing state uh, counties in that state, you're down to 16%. So I guess the real concern is you've got areas of very, very low vaccine coverage. And it feels like certainly is a, a link, a correlation between where we see higher higher Delta spread and, and those areas where the vaccine is, has taken less of a hold. So yeah, really important sort of divergent story within the US. Ed, what about emerging markets then? So a lot of focus at the moment is on EM Asia, where previous handling of the pandemic had been extremely strong in terms of suppressing case numbers. But those economies seem to be sort of relatively worse performance now during the Delta wave. What's going on there? Yeah, exactly. I think, as you say, Paul, that, that is perhaps the most intriguing development from the from the, uh, the the Delta wave, in at least from an EM standpoint, you know we have had jumping cases in in the likes of China, Korea, and Vietnam, but also smaller nations like Cambodia, where, as you say, th- these countries, particularly China, earned the plaudits last year for their kind of zero tolerance approach to COVID, having quashed various outbreaks with impressive efficiency. Um, but now that Delta appears to be um, spreading widely in terms of um, geography within these countries. So for example, in China, um, about half of, of its 32 provinces have now reported cases. So it's very, very geographically widespread. Um, there's there's kind of local transmission in China now. Um, and so this is, the spread of Delta is really put in this um, zero COVID tactic under under renewed scrutiny. Um, just just a few words on other, other EM. Um, so we've, we've seen kind of also large increases in cases in the likes of Mexico, South Africa, Russia. Um, but as you say, most of the talk is about Asia. Um, Asia is now the epicenter, particularly Indonesia suffered a huge rise in cases. Cases are similar level to Brazil now. Um, and it's taken over from India as the epicenter. There's reportedly lack of lack of oxygen now. They're importing oxygen tanks from, from elsewhere. Um, hospitals are becoming overwhelmed in Malaysia, Thailand. 
So it's um, the, the outbreak there is quite severe. And in those those EM major countries, at least ex-China, Ed, the defining sort of driver of the renewed outbreak is, it seems, low vaccination rates. And likewise, James, in the states that you are highlighting as having particular problems, it's to do with low vaccination rates. What's behind these low vaccination rates, James, in the US? Why are there, why are there these huge state-level differences? Well, I think one area that that seems clear and there's been a lot of work done on this is to try and map some political preferences if if we do try and break down vaccination coverage across, across county by by how those counties voted we do tend to see higher vaccination rates in democrat areas as opposed to republican areas um but i think the other point which is maybe slightly underplayed is 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 vaccine access you know for many of us it seems that vaccine access is very very easy in boston you can't throw a stick without hitting a vaccination station but for many groups there are there are real still concerns about getting vaccinated be it around their immigration status be it around the cost of the vaccine even though it's supposed to be free for everyone still concerns over whether it's it's charged be it around getting time off to go to that vaccine station etc so I think there's there's a little bit of a holdout where vaccine hesitancy overlaps with some broader concerns, and, and we see that more 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 closely concentrated in in Republican areas. But but as well, I think that vaccine access issue is still something which is yet to be overcome, and is a major policy priority for 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 administrations sort of across the country. Yeah, a complex nexus of sort of socio-economic, political, um, institutional factors at play there. Ed, what about in um, EMs where vaccine rollout has been more lagging. Is that a question of access and supply? Is it to do with previous success in virus handling and some of these economies um, sort of embedding some complacency? What's going on? Exactly. I think it's both of those things you just highlighted. Um, it's it's a lack of supply um, and related to that, some complacency. You know, they did so well last year that countries, uh, countries like um, thinking of Taiwan, Thailand, um, Vietnam, these countries did so well last year in, in quashing the virus that they didn't really get their act together to push through agreements, uh, supply agreements at an early stage. So now they're at the back of the queue, really. Um, I think there's also potentially a trust issue uh, with, with some governments as to the efficacy of some of the vaccines, particularly in some cases where, for example, Indonesia relies fairly heavily on China's vaccines, which I'm sure we'll perhaps talk about a bit later. Um, but then there's a there's there's an issue there as to um, whether whether people trust the efficacy of those vaccines too. Great. So I think when we get on to thinking about the economic implications of all this, um, the two factors that we think really drive how much Delta is going to affect the course of the economic recovery are, of course, vaccine rollout and levels of, of vaccine penetration, which um, and we've seen that where vaccines are widespread in the population, that breaks the link between cases and hospitalizations of death and deaths clear evidence of that in the UK's wave, but I think you see the same in the US, in Europe, in Israel. Um, but the second factor is the actual strategy that individual countries are pursuing vis-a-vis -vis the control of the pandemic. So last year, the most successful countries in terms of the pandemic handling were those that pursued zero COVID strategies that really tried to suppress overall case numbers in the population. And they were able to normalize more rapidly. And thinking of um, 
New Zealand is the sort of standout example, but China also proved a very good example of that. This year, the um, advent of widespread vaccine rollout and the more infectious just Delta variant actually flip that equation completely on its head. So it means that those countries pursuing zero COVID strategies have to work all the harder to clamp down on an even more infectious variant, while those countries sort of targeting hospitalizations and deaths and allowing some degree of community transmission of, of cases, that strategy becomes somewhat easier or at least less economically damaging in the presence of vaccines which break the link between cases and hospitalizations and death so that i think once you start thinking you start putting countries on a sort of map that that on one axis plots vaccine penetration on the other axis plots the covid handling strategy we can start to get a good handle on how countries are going to perform so in the sort of top right quadrant of this sort of imaginary mapping are those with very high vaccine penetration and COVID strategies that actually accept quite high levels of case numbers, but try to suppress um, hospitalizations and deaths. And James, the US is a very good example of such a country. Does that mean that you're actually not particularly worried about the impact of the Delta variant on the course of the economic recovery? Or do some of these regional differences you've been highlighting mean that that view is too complacent? I think this is something we need to monitor really, really closely. But for the time being, I don't think I'm I'm looking to radically alter my, my growth outlook based on this. You know, a few reasons for that. One that you've highlighted, I think, well there is that at least in the US, weaker translation between new cases and deaths. We've seen deaths increase, but by no by no means what we've seen during previous waves so far, which is a really encouraging sign. And then the second point I think is, is, is quite interesting around the, the state level responses. And what we do tend to see is that in many of those states in which we're seeing worsening trends alongside poorer vaccination rates, and we have seen less reluctance in those states to take punitive and aggressive action against to try and lock down against the, the virus. So certainly during the summer wave last year and even through the, the holiday wave at the turn of this year, we, were, we saw those states suffer quite significant outbreaks, but not, not take very aggressive public health responses and allow a greater degree of community trend, translation of the virus. So for the, for the time being, it seems that that, that, that impact should be relatively localised and relatively muted even at those localised areas. But you know, we just need to be so alert to this and just watch the case levels, watch the, 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 the breadth of those increases, just for signs that that's, that's too complacent and that actually you know, this will be much more disruptive. Great. So the US, you'd probably also put the UK and parts of Europe in that, that grouping of high vaccine, high case tolerance economies that may p- perform better during the Delta wave, albeit with these very important risks that you highlight, James. So the, the countries that would then be at the opposite end of the spectrum in the low vaccine rollout, low case tolerance sort of quadrant are the likes of Australia um, perhaps South Korea, perhaps Japan. And I think there are reasons to think that those economies are actually the most vulnerable economically to to the sort of Delta wave because they require a sustained period of tougher internal and external restrictions to maintain their zero COVID strategies, even while immunity in the population is pretty low 
because of the fairly low levels of vaccine penetration. So if Delta sort of got a foothold, you would probably see much larger um, sp spread. Ed, it's interesting where EMs then sit in this mapping because a lot of them are in the low vaccine, high case tolerance um, quadrant. So I'm thinking Brazil, South Africa, India, Indonesia, Turkey, a lot of those you've highlighted. Are we um, negative on the macro outlook in those economies as Delta takes hold? Or do you think that with vaccine rollout increasing so rapidly, you can be more positive on the economic outlook there? Yeah, there's good points. Yeah, you, you raised that, Paul. I, I guess in, in sh short, yes, we are worried about longer duration shocks in most of those economies you mentioned, Brazil, South Africa, India. And, and we are factoring in, as things stand, long-term damage into our into our um, economic projections, long-term economic projections. Um, I know you, you're close to publishing the paper on long-term economic scaling as, as well, Paul, so we're Look out! Look out for that. Um, you know these countries are essentially dangerous to this this feedback loop, in which cases come down, but restrictions are then eased prematurely, causing cases to rise again, and restrictions to be reimposed against the backdrop of low low vaccination. Um, you know th this feedback loop could have major impacts on you know investment by uncertainty, as well as labour markets. Um, you know, many of these countries also don't have the fiscal resources to supplement private sector incomes or help to preserve labour market matches. Um, there are a couple of kind of nuanced points that I wanted to bring out about this grouping, I suppose. So one is to kind of distinguish between the likes of South Africa, India and Indonesia, where less than 5% of the population are fully vaccinated. That's incredibly low. Um, and, and that's slightly in contrast to places like Brazil and Turkey, where although vaccination coverage is still low by DM standards, they have managed to vaccinate the most vulnerable and elderly. So this helps to explain why, although cases in Brazil, for example, remain very high, the link between cases and deaths has weakened, um, which has eased healthcare pressures. Um, and the, the kind of second nuance is that countries can and have ramped up vaccination very quickly mm -hmm. uh, so for example while overall vaccination coverage is still very low in much of asia run rates in malaysia and taiwan for example have surged over the past few weeks um, and policymakers are now on course to vaccinate kind of 75 percent of their population by by q4 previous trends were pointing to kind of mid 2022 so these things can change very quickly um so it is important to keep on top of the latest run rates and, and obviously we'll, we'll do that in our regular regular publications and how are you thinking ed about the um the rollout of vaccines from china to these em economies because we've done previous episodes of the podcast about vaccine diplomacy and how china in particular um, is very successfully using vaccine supply as a sort of um, tool of, of foreign policy and with vaccination rates reaching now very impressively high levels in China, does that actually increase the supply of vaccines to the, the rest of the emerging world? Yes, Paul, I, I think there will be a, a large amount of supply from China coming on stream uh, very soon. China has vaccinated extremely rapidly um, probably will reach 70 to 75% thresholds by perhaps even later this quarter. Um, so I think supply will come on stream from China. The key issue actually 
is whether there will be demand for the China vaccines against the backdrop of uh, you know concerns about their efficacy against the original strains, let alone the Delta strain. We have very limited visibility about how effective the, the China vaccines will be against that strain. Great. So, and how are you thinking then about the Chinese economy itself? So it's probably in a fourth quadrant we haven't talked about yet, which is the high vaccine but low case tolerance sort of grouping. So a very successful vaccine rollout there, but China is still during this Delta wave pursuing a zero COVID strategy, still doing enormous scale mass testing of like the entire population of provinces to really stamp down on case numbers. What does that mean for economic vulnerability or otherwise to this next global wave? And is some of that driving weaker H1 growth that we've seen in China as well as the outlook from here? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, as you say, China is in this slightly odd position, I suppose, with high vaccination, but still low case tolerance. Um, and, and as you alluded to, Paul, there, there is evidence in China's recently released GDP data for, for, for Q1 and Q2 that, that its zero tolerance approach probably contributes to a weak H1 for the economy. And, you know, given the, the tightening of restrictions um, recently, it probably also contributed to a weak start to Q3 as well. Just, just to give an example, China has, um, has banned all indoor mixing and closed shopping malls in one provincial capital with about the same population as London after just one confirmed case. Um, and it did, did something similar when, when it, um, it uh, found about two or three asymptomatic cases. So it's a very, very aggressive approach, um, which obviously has direct impacts on activity via the cessation of economic activity, but also indirect impacts via kind of business uncertainty and things. Uh, what, one of the point I would make is that it's clear that the, the recent outbreak in China um, underscores that this zero COVID approach maybe is is unsustainable, um, but perhaps perhaps the other point is that um, there's a question about if if China does not um, does not move away from zero COVID as other countries in the region have done, like Singapore, perhaps that says something about its trust in its own vaccines, which would which would obviously have very negative implications for other EMs that are relying on China's vaccines, such as Chile, Peru, Indonesia, Turkey, Brazil. Brilliant. James, that's a really useful discussion, I think, of the ways in which this wave of the pandemic coming alongside widespread vaccine rollout, at least in parts of the world, changes somewhat how we view the combination of, of COVID handling strategy, um, vaccine rollout, and how all that plays into the macro recovery. And it sort of changes the nature of who actually performs better and who performs worse relative to some of the patterns we saw in 2020. I think our global view is probably still that we're in recovery. It's very hard for the world economy to do anything other than recover at this stage, given how far it still is um, below pre-pandemic um, levels. But divergence, as we've been talking about, is an absolutely central theme within that recovery. Investors need to be very clear on who can negotiate the next stage of the pandemic more or less successfully. But that's about all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to like or subscribe on your podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. 
please note that email is not a secure form of communication, so don't send any personal or sensitive information. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.